You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We are continuing in our teaching series through the book of Galatians. Uh, What a wonderful time this has been so far. Just in the first couple weeks, we see that this this letter is just rich with gospel uh, implications and information not just for information's sake, we don't read this uh, just so that we can learn facts about God, but for transformation, so that we can bring our lives under the teaching of God's Word. Because when we open up Scripture and open up these words and look at these words, we realize that we're hearing from God. He speaks to us this morning. And so let's go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 to 14. We'll read the first 14 verses there, chapter 2. Let's follow along together. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Well, that came out of nowhere, didn't it? Let's get... Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is God's word. All right. The circumcision party. Sounds like a fun party, doesn't it? Um, we tackle a really important scandal in the early church, a controversy, a big conflict between pillars of the early church, Peter and Paul. Now, if you were to look, if some of you have your bulletin with you, if you were to look at the cover, maybe you've seen the artwork of the bulletin, and if you could maybe think of a one or two word caption for this series, what would it be? Yeah. Thank you. See, this is the participation portion of the sermon. That's good. Freedom. 
being set free. Earlier in the series, someone said birds. Nah, not exactly. Enslaved, we have been enslaved, we've been locked in, we've been caged in by sin, but we have been set free. And this is a, a, a concept that we will encounter a multitude of times in this letter. And the first time we see it this week in our passage. The gospel is freedom from a performance-based acceptance from God and freedom to trust in God's unmerited favor. And it's here in this passage we see two very important things. The first time we see freedom, and so he is going to begin, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing this, he's going to begin to flesh out what does that mean for us, and two, this big scandal regarding the idea of freedom between two powerhouse leaders in the church. Peter and Paul does not get bigger than this. I mean, this is like, you know, King Kong and Godzilla, you know, Ant-Man and Wasp-Man, I I don't know. Uh, These two big, big pillars, the biggest in the early church, and they are in conflict with each other. Now, this is a really big deal. I have the impression, as I think back on the early church, you know, Jesus is walking with these people, he's discipling them, he's loving them, he's teaching them, he dies for their sins, they're crushed, he, they, his disciples see him resurrected, they have been filled with the Holy Spirit, and now the early church has started, Jesus has ascended into heaven, and I think it just must have been amazing time to be a Christian. Things would be so much better if we could just get back to like the early church way of doing things. What do you mean? Like when people chose pastors based on their reputation, when leaders in the church fought with one another, when, you know, the same stuff that happens today was happening then. There was conflict, there was confusion, there was broken relationships, there was scandal and confrontation, there was people disagreeing with each other, going to churches based on the popularity of the pastor, stealing from one another financially in other ways. I want to give you the background of this controversy because it it really does set the the backdrop for um, this theological message, Um, and then we'll spend the rest of the time really unpacking the implications of that. We need to understand this in the context of the Old Testament laws of purity. In the Old Testament, God gave people um, what what was known as the Mosaic Law. Uh, These were ways that God's people ought to walk in, they ought to observe these rituals, observe these laws. They contained countless regulations, hundreds of regulations, in order to present yourself as one who has been purified before God. Because God is a holy God, and we are sinful people, and so God made a provision for sinful people to have a relationship with God who was holy. And this is a good provision. And God said, I can't have a relationship with you. You're not like me. I'm not like you. I'm holy, and you're not holy. And so God God created provisions for them a way of purifying themselves, a way of walking through a means of of spiritual um, purification that was manifested in just physical ways, like actually physically washing themselves. And one of those ways was circumcision. These were visual aids of the cutting away of flesh of males, and in order to signify their purity before God. And God said, I want you to do this as a way of identifying with me. And at the time of the writing, many of these Jewish people who practiced these purity laws were raised in this their entire lives, were now becoming Christians. 
They were trusting in Christ, believing in his life, death, and resurrection for their forgiveness of sins, trusting that their sins had been washed clean, not by the shedding of their own blood, but because of the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross in their place. And so the circumcision was always meant to point to a greater spiritual reality, that the shedding of blood will happen and then your sins will be forgiven. But see, this is all that the Jewish people knew. They, they were growing up in this. They were, it was, they were uh, shaped by this ritual. And now they're becoming Christians, trusting in the shedding of blood of Jesus for them, but they're still requiring circumcision. Old habits die hard. And these new converts to Christianity were teaching other new converts of Christianity, you need to be circumcised in order to be acceptable to God as a way of purifying yourself and making yourself ready for God. Peter would eat with Gentiles. Peter, a Jew, would eat with Gentiles, teach Christ to them, see them come to faith in Christ, and then some of the Jews would come and he would get really scared and out of fear he would leave the Gentiles. He would change his tune and out of fear he would teach a different message. Oh yeah, yeah, actually you, you, we do, we're still doing that, we're still doing circumcision. Don't worry, we haven't given up on that. This is a very important cultural golden calf for the Jewish people. And Peter had fallen into this ditch, into this trap. In fact, he had become enslaved, as we learn, by these old ways. These old ways that were contradictory to the gospel. And so these false brothers, as Paul calls out, they were not against Christ. I mean, they were not against Christ. They weren't teaching uh, that Christ should not be accepted. In fact, they were just adding to Christ. They're saying, Jesus is good, trust in him, but also do this. You know, kind of covering all your bases. Do good, trust in grace and what Jesus did, but also make sure that you perform these rituals. And we mentioned this in week one of the series, that the, the greatest threat to the gospel is Jesus plus anything as the basis of our acceptance from God. And that's what these false brothers were doing. For some of these early Jewish Christians, Christ and his work was not enough. You had to adopt the Mosaic law. You had to go through these rituals, the dietary laws, the ceremonial cleansing laws. And so the big question in the early church was, is Jesus enough? Or is there something more that we need to do in order to be accepted by God? Paul says, absolutely, Jesus is enough. And the Jewish teachers, who are now Christians, were saying, He's not enough. And so the central point of this controversy was the order of someone's salvation. How is a person saved? How is a person accepted before God? And look at the two here. I want to put them on the screen here for you to see and compare them because it's subtle, but it's also everything. Paul is saying, believe and be saved, and therefore we obey. The false teachers or false brothers are saying, believe do what God says, and then we, will be, then we will be saved. It's subtle, but it's everything. It's a matter of our eternal salvation. How are we accepted? Is it through our, our good works, or is it through grace? Why does Paul make this such a big issue? I mean, he's opposing like Peter, the one who Jesus went to and said, you are, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. He singles out this one disciple and said, everything, it's, you're, you're going to be the, the mouthpiece of the church. You are going to be 
the proclaimer of the gospel, and I'm going to build it on you. And Paul opposes him to his face. Why even do that? Well, religion tells us one thing and the gospel tells us another. And for Paul, it was very important to make the distinction between the two. The, the issue is not a difference between denominations, right? It wasn't Peter and Paul saying, well, let's just be two different denominations and kind of coexist together and we're kind of all going for the same thing. But it was a difference between religion and, it was, and the gospel. You're thinking, well, isn't Christianity a religion? Well, it is, but think about it in this sense. If we think about religion, <clears throat> religion tells us what we must do in order to get blessing from God. And this is common in all world in, in, in world religions. Be good, be better, try harder, improve your life, follow the rules, be more obedient. Religion virtually says, save yourself. Here is the manual for how to live, and if you do these things, then you'll be saved. But Christianity is different from all those re- world religions. Christianity doesn't tell us what we must do in order to be loved by God. Christianity tells us what has already been done for us through Jesus Christ how we have been loved, how we've been accepted, how we have been saved. And the fruit of that blessing is grace-empowered obedience. We obey not in order to get God, but because He has been given to us. So the controversy is big enough for Paul. And so it should be big enough for us to confront this idea. It's big enough to be included in God's Word, And so it's important for us to look at. Because how a person is accepted by God is the most important question in the world. How will you answer that question? You probably ask that, and maybe not out loud in real words, but in some way you live your life asking that question, am I good enough for God? What must I do to be loved and accepted by God? And so we look at this implication, the implications of the gospel The implications of what Paul is trying to communicate here that he so aggressively defends and protects. And this is the gospel that Paul preaches. One, it reminds us of God's attitude towards his people. This is the first implication of the gospel that Paul preaches. It reminds us of the attitude towards his people. What does that mean? We we know what attitudes are, right? Anger, jealousy, kindness, indifference, frustration. You know, these are, these are attitudes. The grace of God, by understanding the grace of God well, we will learn the attitude of God for us. We'll know his mind, his heart, how he feels towards his people. The grace of God is not just a spiritual boost. The grace of God is not like this shot in the arm that God gives us. He doesn't look at us and say, you're so close, you're almost there. What you need is just a boost. What you need is, is just a, a little help. Carl Lewis, the greatest long jumper of all time, right? Olympic record holder, holds the the record for the longest long jump. If you were standing next to Carl Lewis on the edge of the south rim of the Grand Canyon and both gave it your best try, he would get a lot closer than you. But you would both end up at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. We don't need to just jump harder. We don't just need to be better. We don't need to just be... Uh, have greater character because the grace of God doesn't give us that little dose of what we need. The grace of God is, is everything. It is the power of God for salvation. It's not just a spiritual boost. There are many today who believe that the grace of God is this assist 
in salvation. Something God gives to all of his people so that they can then save themselves. But when we understand the grace of God as it's proclaimed in the scriptures by Paul, we see that it reflects the attitude of Jesus, the attitude of God for his people. That he holds no condemnation against his people. The grace of God, it's not a spiritual boost, but an attitude of his undeserved love and favor for his people. By his grace, we are declared righteous. Declared righteous because of the righteousness of God. It has been credited to us, imputed to us. That's an important word, a theological word that we understand about how the righteousness of Christ and his truth, his perfect character, his justice, his righteousness, his rightness, his moral purity is applied to us so that God looks at us as if we have never sinned. How does that happen? It happens through a declaration of God. Some might believe in a a different theological term, and that is not imputed, but infused. That God takes the righteousness of Jesus and connects it to us, almost like, uh, like, like a tandem bicycle. Now Jesus is with us, and he's pedaling with us, and he's helping us along, and we just need another pair of legs to kind of get up that hill of life. But the Bible tells us that it's been imputed. It's, we've been declared righteous by grace through faith. This means that being accepted by God is not something that might happen if we're good enough, but a declaration by God that because of what Jesus has done for us, we will no longer be declared guilty of sin on judgment day. No longer. A declaration that knows that we stand before God Because of Jesus, innocent, without condemnation. And Paul reasons this with Peter. He argues with him. He reasons with him. He talks to him. He says, if you, in verse 14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to then live like a Jew? What does that mean? This needs a little bit of explaining because that's a confusing way of saying this. Here's what Paul is reminding Peter of. Peter, God did not have fellowship with you because you followed the rules, right? And Peter would say, right. In fact, Peter would know, I broke all the rules. If we know anything about Peter, we know him to be the one in Jesus' greatest need of friendship. Peter denied him three times. Peter betrayed him, denied him. And Paul says, okay, let's remember that. So Jesus did not accept you based on your race because you're Jewish, right? No. He, didn't, he did not accept you based on your culture. No. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't save you based on your behavior. No, in spite of that, in fact. Or your righteous deeds or your family of origin. None of that. You were not accepted by God based on your standing in your community or your upbringing. Then why are you treating people as if they are accepted by God because they are in all those things, because of their family, because of their culture, because of their behavior, because of their rituals. You're a Jew who's living like a Gentile, accepted by grace, not by their family. Why are you now treating Gentiles as if they have to run through these hoops to be accepted by God? And he says, you have forgotten the gospel. 
You never want to hear that. You have forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten the very basis of why God loves you. You may have uh, remembered the relationship with Jesus in some basic way, Peter, but you're acting like a hypocrite. That's also another word you never want to be called. You're acting like a hypocrite. He uses that word in verse 13. You're, you're preaching a salvation by a grace of God, but then you're treating people based on a, a grace that actually comes through works and behavior. So reflect on these questions, some personal questions on this point. Do the sins of others cause you to alienate yourself from them? Or what are some ways that you hold people to a higher standard than you hold yourself? Now, these are good diagnostic questions to maybe assess if how we have maybe drifted from the truth of the gospel. God forgives me. He knows my sin. He knows my life. He knows how hard life is. And God is merciful, and he knows I trust in him. And then we see somebody else sin, and we're like, well, you got to be better. you got to be better than that. I thought you were a Christian. That's when we hold someone to a higher standard. You have to, you have to fix your behavior. But as for me, God loves me by grace. What about someone that doesn't live up to the commands of Scripture? Oh, I just can't have a relationship with you. You're a bad witness. You're bad for me. You're, you're, it's not good to associate with you. What Paul does not say in this passage is, to Peter is maybe just as important as what he does say. Here's what he doesn't say. Peter, you're breaking the rules. Peter, you're sinning. Stop sinning. Peter, change your life. Jesus died for you. Do it right. And so his absence of all of that kind of reasoning is really helpful for us. Just as important as what he does say, he reminds Peter of the attitude of God that we are saved not by doing good and rejecting bad, but the gift of God's grace. And that is what Peter confronts. He says, you have stepped out of line with the gospel. He doesn't say, fix it. He says, you've forgotten. You've forgotten the gospel. Paul gets a little snarky here in verse 6 when he refers to the influential people. Did you notice that? I like that part. He says, you know, all the really important pastors and all the really important leaders in the church were watching me teach and watching me disciple, and they were criticizing my teaching. What do I care? <laughs> what do I care if they're special in the church? They're no more special to God than the worst of all sinners. They are no more special to God than me. As if they had something to offer God that made them somehow more accepted to God, that, that Paul should be afraid of their influence, afraid of their critique, afraid of their evaluation of him. He says, why should I care who they are? No one, by matters of their merit, character, record, culture, experience, are anything more or any more capable of being accepted by God than the worst of all people. If we are saved by grace, then our credentials 
gain us no greater access to God, and our failures gain us no greater alienation from God. Because God is impartial. That's what Paul tells us. He does not play favorites. It doesn't matter what we bring to God in our credentials. And it doesn't matter how far away we are from the grace of God because of our sin. We are all dependent on grace. I recall a conversation that I had with a, a young Christian a few years ago, a young Christian in his faith, and we were beginning uh, to talk about sin. We were talking about the nature of sin, the origin of sin. We were talking about Adam and Eve, and we were, I think, just grieving over all the sin in the world and how painful this world is living in a broken world. And we were tracing that back to the origin of sin in the garden and the act of rebellion of Adam and Eve to disobey God and eat that the fruit that God commanded them not to eat. And in that grief, I remember my friend saying, how wonderful would it be if, just, if they never did that, if they never ate of that fruit? Maybe you've wondered that too. What if an Adam, Adam and Eve never sinned? And he's sharing this, and, and we're thinking about it together, and he just says, I wish they didn't eat it. And I was like, you know what? If they didn't eat it, I would have. Shock! And he says, but, but you're a... You're, you're a pastor. You're, but you're a pastor. How could you say that? How could you say, of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't eat of it. I mean, you, you know God. You love God. You follow God. You've spent your, uh, most of your adult life like walking in faithfulness. And I, I looked at him and said, okay, let's consider for the moment that I, don't, I wouldn't eat it. But if I didn't eat it, then you would have. And he said, and again, the shock again. And he's like, I, what do you mean I would have eaten? I, I would try my hardest not to. Have you ever broken a rule that God's given to you? Have you ever disobeyed God? Of course you had. What makes you think you wouldn't break that one either? What makes you think that you wouldn't be the cause of all the sin that has entered into the world and, and, and devastated the world and all of humanity and all of creation? It would have been you. And if it wasn't you, I, I promise you it would have been me. What I wanted him to see is that we all turn away from Christ. We all rebel against Christ, even myself. And we need this grace. Every single one of us. There's nothing weird about what he said. There's nothing weird about him thinking, I wish they didn't sin so that things would be better. Most people, even, even Christians, see life in this way, that, that it's somebody else's sin that has caused, and caused the problems that we're in. But if we look at our day-to-day lives only from an an issue of rule-breaking or rule-keeping, we're not seeing the real problem. If we wake up in the morning and say, I hope I follow the rules and don't break God's rules so that I will feel accepted by Him, we're we're not seeing it as we should. Paul's showing us the greater problem than rule-breaking here is he's showing us the root of our sin, that we have failed to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. We have created something altogether different. And we've forgotten our very roots of our relationship with God, the very basis of, of our relationship with God. And this, so this confrontation implies something else, not just the attitude of God that he has for us, but it implies that it challenges us to walk in line with the gospel. Paul's challenging Peter not to get his life right, not to sin less, not to obey more. He's challenging him to walk 
in step and in line with the gospel. Paul says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So he says, this is what I saw. This is what bothered me. Not their, not their act. It was a specific situation, but the general principle here, the, I had a problem because they were not walking in step with the gospel. There's one word in the Greek that takes many English words to explain, and I bet without any Greek training here, you can figure out what the word means. It's the word orthopedeo. You know what a podiatrist is, right? Yeah. Gold star. Foot doctor. You know what ortho is, right? Anybody have a 13-year-old getting ready for braces? Orthodontist? Boom again. Straight walker. Move your feet in a trajectory that is straight. Um, Paul says, I saw they're not walking in step with the gospel. I saw their walk. It had a trajectory. I saw their actions. I saw their life. I saw their theology. And it follows a line. And Paul was able to see, kind of in his mind's eye, he was able to see the trajectory of that life. And he's telling them, if you walk in this way, you will be off the path that God calls you to. Every decision, every step that we take is on a trajectory, a trajectory towards God or away from God. Every decision that we make is either in step with God and the truth of the gospel, or it is out of step. It is crooked. I see that those teeth are not in step, in line. <laughs> Let's go to the orthodontist. Paul is concerned not just with their right doing, he's concerned with their lives. Not because he's a legalistic or not because he's a joy-killing, rule-following Christian, but because he discerned that their steps were taking them away from a, the, the joy-filling, freedom-giving grace of God. And that is what the grace of God does. It sets us free from a trajectory that only enslaves, only curses, only damages, robs, kills, and destroy. And Paul's looking at that and saying, I, I'm not just a joy-killing legalist. I want you to know the joy-filling, freedom-giving grace of God. Walk in step with the gospel. Why would you do that? Why would you take steps in the opposite direction? What does the truth of the gospel tell us? It tells us that we are sinners that Christ lived the life that we're supposed to live but failed to di uh, live, but he, and he died the death that we deserve to die in our place. But when we trust in him by faith, Jesus' right standing, his righteousness is credited to us. And this is called righteousness by faith. We're supposed to bring absolutely every area of our life to be on a trajectory of the gospel. Every area. Not a single area of our life out of step with the gospel. This means when we think about the gospel, what Christ has done for us, it will always call us to align our lives, our attitudes, our thinking, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our finances, everything in our life to be in step with the gospel, in line with what he has done for us. 
It means that we're supposed to think critically in those ways and asking ourselves, does this attitude and action, this lifestyle, is it walking closer to God, faithful to Him as a response of His love for me, or is it against Him? Is it opposing Him? Is it rebelling against Him? Do we reject the Ten Commandments because we're saved by grace? No. Why not? I did this when I, when I first became a Christian in college. Saved by grace. You mean God accepts me no matter what? And guess what I did after that? Not go to class. <laughs> 1.9 GPA. God doesn't care about my actions. He loves me no matter what. I matured. I learned more. I grew. I understood that the grace of God didn't free me from the commands of God, but it freed me from finding my acceptance with God through the commands of God. And in fact, the commands of God are life-giving. The writers of Scripture understand this, that when we understand grace, we will pursue obedience to Christ, not out of obligation, not out of fear, but out of joy. And they will not become burdensome to us. The commands of God will be something that we desire, long for, David says, they're sweeter than honey. I crave your, give me more things to do. <laughs> Why would you say that? Not to be right with God, but to enjoy more of that joy-filled, freedom-giving grace of God in our everyday. Paul, both Paul and the for, uh, false teachers and false brothers were teaching the commands of God, but they were doing it for different reasons. False teachers were teaching us to obey as a means of God's acceptance. And Paul would teach us to live out obedience to Christ because of God's acceptance. For we were created for these good works. We were created for obedience, holiness, righteousness. But we have failed to do all those things on our own. Here's another great question, perhaps, to check your heart with. Do you care more about stopping a certain sin than you do about loving Jesus. Why do you want to be better? Why do you want to change your life? Why do you want to grow in your faith? You all have that. There's all, you all have something in your life where you're thinking, I, I want to stop what I'm doing and I want to do something different. I want to start doing something good and stop doing something bad. Oh, I know, I know that's part of who I am and I really don't want to be that way. Why? Why don't you want to be that way? So you feel better about yourself, so that God will love you more, so others will like you more. Those shouldn't be primary reasons. To love Jesus, to walk in his joy-filled and freedom-giving grace of God, to walk in a deeper communion with him, to enjoy the pleasure that comes from knowing that we are walking in step with God in our life. And all those other things, all those other motivations, that the, God will take care of that. Those things will come. We don't do it for self-esteem. We don't do it to become an ideal person. And we don't do it to please others. Paul mentions that several times, even again this time. He says, what do you, what do you think I'm saying this for? So that others will like me? You're kidding me, right? Who, who's your biggest person in the church? Uh, Peter. Okay, let me talk to him. Tell him he's wrong. He doesn't care. 
The real problem in our lives, the real angst in our hearts, whatever it may be, is not because we're breaking God's rules too much. The real problem is we're desiring deeper relationship with Jesus too little. The antidote for the angst and pain in your heart and sense of alienation from God is not for you to do better. It is to desire Jesus more. The gospel is not the entryway into the Christian life. It's not the first thing that we, we do just to know God and then from there on we just work to, to get better. It is the entire Christian life. The, the way we deal with every challenge, the, every obstacle is to examine the truth of the gospel and examine our life in light of it and ask ourselves, are we walking in line and in step with the gospel? Well, what's that gospel? We need to keep being reminded of it. That's why we come back every week we pour over God's scriptures, we sing it in our songs, we remind one another of it in our life groups. We keep reminding and telling each other, it's not because of you, it's because of Jesus, because we forget every moment. The gospel has implications. How do we bring our work in line with the gospel? How do we bring our, our, our marriage in line with the gospel? How do we bring our relationship with girlfriend, boyfriend, coworker, neighbor, in line with the gospel? How do we bring our finances in line with the gospel? How do we bring our self-esteem, our self-worth, our hopes and dreams and fears in line with the gospel? There's no area that God does not desire to transform according to his good news. Anyone who believes that our relationship with God is based on keeping up moral behavior is on an endless treadmill of guilt and insecurity. You will never feel safe with God. If it depends on you, you're just going to be an emotional wreck forever. Many of you have lived that life. I've lived that life. It creeps in every once in a while too. It never leads to something good. You never feel good about yourself. Because sometimes when you do succeed, you'll, you'll, you'll be puffed up. You'll think you're better than others. You'll have this air of superiority. And when you fail, you're going to feel beat up. You're going to feel like a loser, like a failure. The gospel is the righteousness of Christ given to us by grace through faith, and there's nothing that we can add to the work of Christ that makes us more acceptable to God. Lastly, this conflict implies something else more, not more, but equally important. It shows us a picture of godly confrontation. Here's the problem with confrontation. 99 of 100 times, you and I are going to probably do it wrong. <laughs> Feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? We're so bad at doing it, confronting someone because we need to get something off our chest. Ah, I just need to get this off my chest, and you need to know about it. Ah, okay, I feel so much better. Uh, we, 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 get so, we, we confront someone because we want them to change their behavior. That's not godly confrontation. We, we confront someone because we want them to see things our ways and their our way and therefore restore peace that's not godly confrontation and those are the times we actually do confront people most of the time we just don't confront people we don't talk about the problems that we have let's be honest we don't like confrontation we don't want to be that person who's accused of being nitpicky or confrontational or argumentative we don't want to uh to risk the relationship, and so we just don't bring it up. What if they don't like us? Maybe we lack courage to do it. Um, we'd rather just have like a business-like relationship with our spouse or our friends than address something that's really wrong. 
Well, Paul, thank God, does not fall into these ditches that we often fall into, but he, has, he confronts Peter, and that relationship is restored. Paul shows us godly confrontation with the right motivation. Godly confrontation is committed to restoration, to relationship, and to reporting the truth. Restoration, relationship, and reporting the truth. Paul is concerned with not just confronting Peter, but restoring Peter's heart back to the gospel, for seeing growth in his life, for seeing him come back into step with Jesus, to free him from this shame-filled guilt or needing to work his way into relationship with God. He was committed to relationship. Paul could have easily ignored Peter and said, well, you're doing it wrong. I'm going to start my own denomination. I'm going to start my own thing. You guys do it over there. They had, they had no reason to be connected because Paul felt called to the Gentiles. Peter felt called to the Jews. They were in totally different cultures. But Paul says, I care about you as my brother. And that is motivating me to confront you in sin. And godly confrontation will always report the truth. It will always be consistent with Christ. It will always be consistent with the Word of God. It's not our opinion or being consistent just with our way of seeing the world. It is always based on bringing people into a right and healthy standing with God. Let me close with, with this and just kind of talk to a couple people in this room, not specifically, but generally. If, if you're a Christian... You know, you've been walking with Jesus, you love Jesus, you trust in Jesus, but you feel that maybe you're not walking in step with the gospel. Somewhere along the way, you, you took a turn, you, you, you took a step off that path, and now you're in a place that you never thought you would be, and it's so far away from that trajectory, trajectory that you felt God was calling you to. I don't need to know what area that is for you. You know what it is. It's on your heart. It's on your mind. You think of it often. And I want to remind you that it's not a matter of your rule keeping. It's not a matter of your rule following or your promises to God to do it right next time. It is an issue of you saturating your life with the truth of God's love for you and that there is no greater no safer, no more joy-filled place to be than right where Jesus has called you. The best path to be on is the path of obedience, even when it is more hard, even when it's more painful and often costs a lot more. You will never be sorry to be on that path with him. My encouragement to you to is be to pursue him more than you have pursued anything in your entire life. And you will find peace and freedom from the shame and burden of not walking as you know you should walk. Maybe there's others in this room, and this is the first time you've ever heard this. 
you've ever heard, the first time you've ever heard that God does not have fellowship with you based on your behavior, but rather based on Jesus' behavior and his declaration of grace and righteousness to you. My hope for you is that you really would believe this. Maybe it's not the way you grew up. Maybe it's hard for you to accept that someone would love you that much. But my hope is that you would embrace this today, that you would know this is the truth of God, that this is Jesus and his love for you, that his attitude towards you is not one of hatred, of judgmentalism, condemnation. It is one of affection and love and everlasting joy. And there is no greater joy than to see a sinner repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. I hope you believe it and put your hope in it and commit each day to knowing Jesus more and more. He alone can set you free from that prison. He alone can give us what we need.